This is Growing the Valley, a podcast by the University of California, Agriculture and Natural Resources. I'm one of your hosts, Luke Milliron, Farm Advisor for Butte, Tehama, and Glen Counties. I'm your other host, Phoebe Gordon, Orchard Farm Advisor for Madera and Merced Counties. this interview a couple of months ago, back before the pandemic, with Leslie Holland, and at that time she was a PhD candidate in the lab of Florent Trias, who is our pathology specialist in tree crops, and between now and then she got a job as as an assistant professor and extension specialist in plant pathology at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, so congratulations Leslie. This episode does discuss pesticide use. Mention of a trade name is not an endorsement or a recommendation. Always check the label and any supplemental labels before applying and follow label instructions. The label is law. Um, but we're going to be talking today about Botrysphyria cankers and almonds. Let's just start out with a, what is Botrysphyria? Uh, so Botrysphyria, uh, I guess specifically I can speak Botrysphyria AC, is actually a family of different fungi. And this family contains quite a few different species, and a lot of these species are actually able to cause infection on almond as well as other different fruit nut crops in California. So do Botrysphyria species just attack almonds, or are there other species that they attack as well? There are definitely a lot of other species. Uh, specifically in California, we oftentimes see them on pistachio and walnut. We also see them on grape. Uh, there have been more recent reports of them on avocado and citrus as well, uh, different riparian hosts in California. So quite a broad host range, and especially for a lot of different crops in California, which can be intimidating when we think about where this pathogen is coming from. I'm sure it probably affects horticultural plants too, right? Absolutely, yeah. yes. Okay. How do these species infect almond trees? They can infect in a multitude of ways. They seem to be really good at it. Um, specifically for the different Botrysphyriaceae fungi, they're able to get in through cracks on the trees. So this might be a growth crack. They can also enter through pruning wounds. Some more of the recent research from uh, Famous McAlady suggests they can enter through lenticels or even holes made by woodpeckers. So they're extremely good at getting into these wounds on trees. Okay. You know, a bunch of trees have growth cracks, and I guess I don't get questions about woodpeckers that often, (laughs) but um, how then is the Botrysphyria able to infect a tree? Is it just chance? Do the trees have an ability to fight it off to some degree? or So oftentimes these infections are occurring when the weather is around rain events. So this is the most conducive time are these rain events. Oftentimes, I believe for Botrysphyria, it tends to be kind of when the weather is a bit warmer, so in the spring. So we're getting either rain. Um, in some cases, there have been studies that have linked actually irrigation. It's just enough pers- or water to allow these fungi to infect these wounds. So as far as the trees having their own resistance, uh, once infection occurs, trees are able to kind of try and heal themselves by callousing off. But oftentimes, depending upon the time of year and I'm sure other environmental factors, that isn't always a possibility. Mm -hmm. I think um, I posted an episode with Danny Lytle about band canker, which is a type of Botrysphyria. Correct. And that was something that they were looking at in that species. 
and I guess it just all comes, I guess going back to what you are saying earlier with the water, it all comes back to the disease triangle, right? Absolutely, yep. Yeah. So you can have Botrysphere available, but if the environmental conditions aren't conducive, you might not get infection. Okay. So. Okay. How does Botrysphere spread? Primarily, from our understanding, it does spread through water or rain splash, which again, it can also be irrigation. And so this will allow the spores to release from the different fruiting bodies that they're able to grow in. And then after that, usually wind can take them and wind can come and spread these spores to from one host to almond, from almond to almond. Um, so it could be in the orchard, it could be outside of the orchard. Okay, so you have the spores coming in through wind and then you need the water for it to activate? Or? So yeah, you typically, I think the water typically is gonna happen first. The rain's gonna happen or the irrigation's gonna happen and these spores are gonna release from their fruiting bodies. So let's say drops of rain or drops of irrigation hit the fruiting bodies on the woody tissue, this kind of ejects the spores, which can then move to maybe the next tree, or in the case of wind, gonna be a little bit further in terms of their dispersal. Okay, so I'm guessing that's just a, something that these fungi have evolved then to make sure they're not reproducing unless Absolutely, yes. They're, they're doing it at a very specific time. And this is pretty consistent for a lot of the other canker fungi as well. They're able to produce these fruiting bodies. These fruiting bodies can exist in the wood for a couple years, a couple months, and then when rain or the right conducive conditions occur, then they can eject and move on to the next host. Okay. Something that I come across a lot on farm calls is growers will ask me to come look at trees and they think they're diseased, but that may or may not always be the case. So if I am going and looking at a tree, how can I tell whether or not it's a disease canker or something else? That's an excellent question. And we've also come across that a lot. And as a pathologist, my inclination is always, oh, it's definitely a canker disease. And I've learned the hard way that it is not always that. In terms of being in the field and trying to identify these things, Typically, canker diseases in general will see gamosis on almond, especially a lot of the pruna species. Uh, we'll also see a darkened, kind of sunken area in the bark of the tissue, whether that's on the trunk or the branch. And this is a really good indication that you probably have a canker disease. Are you going to see this darkened, sunken area just by looking at the bark, or do you need to cut into the wood? Oftentimes, you can see it on the bark if, with a trained eye. Um, however, it is always good to cut into the bark and remove that tissue to see if you have any discoloration in your vascular tissue. Typically, with a canker, we'll see a brown to dark brown color usually has a very definite margin, uh, where in some other cases, for these non-pathogen-related issues, an abiotic issue, we'll still see vascular discoloration, and we might even see gumming, which is even more confusing. But the thing we've noticed is the discoloration tends to be a bit more superficial. With other issues, that could be maybe herbicide damage, or I know we've seen a lot of issues of boron toxicity that seems to really almost mimic canker diseases. And when we bring these samples back to the lab, for isolation, we're unable to detect any fungi. I know that rely herbicides can cause that's an excellent example. Yeah, very yep. similar to Phytophthora in young orchards. Yes, it does look very similar. The thing I think we've noticed in those cases for like the boron toxicity or the herbicide injury is that those symptoms tend to be on several trees kind of clustered to the edge of an orchard or to a particular area of the orchard where with, we're looking at band canker, other Botrysphere or other cankers in trees tend to kind of be spread out within the orchard. So that pattern can sometimes be a bit of a hint that you're dealing with something else. Okay. When you are looking at something, you think, well, this doesn't quite look like herbicide, it might be a disease. What's your next step to identify it? 
in the field, it's really difficult to identify what type of canker disease you're working with. I can probably get it down to the fact that it is a canker disease, and I can probably tell you that it came in, uh, you know, around um, this junction between the trunk and the scaffold or at a pruning wound. But as far as what's causing it, I can't tell you that in the field. So the next step for us is typically to then take a sample of infected tissue. Uh, we try and get all of the infected parts plus portions of the healthy tissue, kind of that in-between area, that margin, um, and then we bring that back to the lab and do isolations to try and determine if that is in fact caused by a fungal pathogen. Okay. So for similar symptoms to almonds, we discussed herbicide and boron. Mm -hmm. Are there any similar things that you can think of that would look like a canker? Uh, the only other thing I can think of that happened, I want to say towards the end of last year, that I wasn't actually in the field. This was uh, my advisor, Dr. Trias, was in the field, and he saw a case, I think, of sulfuric acid that had caused like a streaking almost in oh, vascular tissue. That was my, I think that was a farm called. Was that with you? Okay. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, I don't think it was sulfuric acid. It was some sort of biological, it was to kill biological stuff. Um, oh, okay. In the, okay. the irrigation system. But yeah, it was, it was. That didn't present on the outside. Like, we didn't see those gumming, right. but random scaffolds were starting to die back. And then when flow started cutting into it, it was just this really dark streaking. Yeah, line. that was really striking. And yeah. that's, to me, that was like, at least with that, it was a very defined line of margin. So it didn't look like a pathogen. But otherwise, man, it was pretty, pretty startling. Yeah, so. it's the sort of thing that growers don't like to see, but like you see people get really excited. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, lots of pictures were taken that day. <laughs> Okay, so going back to bot, what should a grower do when they have a canker? Is there are there products that we have for curing cankers? Unfortunately, no. And there's definitely been a lot of research that's investigated if that's a possibility, and it really seems like it's not. And so the best options that we have now are really to focus on prevention. But that right, that doesn't really help you too much if you already have a canker. In instances where you already have a canker. Uh, you could perform a tree surgery, so to speak, and that can be helpful. It's not really the best option if you have a ton of trees, right, that are infected, but um, if it's something you choose to do, you just want to make sure that you're cutting into the canker tissue all the way a little bit into the healthy tissue just to make sure that you're getting the, the pathogen. And just making those cuts, removing any of the excess kind of bark on the edges will allow that tissue to start being encouraged to callus over and prevent it from uh, further infections, kind of protect it a little bit. But really prevention is something that we've been trying to focus on and has been a big point of research in our lab for the last three years, looking at preventing these infections, trying to use different fungicidal products on top of pruning wounds, which tends to be a major entry point for these pathogens. Okay. If you're going to do surgery to try to remove a canker, when should you be thinking about doing it? Absolutely. I think the biggest thing that you want to be mindful of when trying to remove, right, cut into the wood, would just to be avoid any rain uh, or precipitation in the forecast, right? You don't want to make a new fresh cut on the wood and then have rain coming in and that heightens that chance of another infection. So just kind of go for a drier period. Okay. Would you want to do some sort of fungicide spray on top of it to try to prevent reinfection? You know, that's we get that question a lot, and I don't think it would be a bad idea, especially if you're making a really significant cut. If you're just taking out a few branches that might have had like a little bit of a dieback or canker, you're probably okay. But if you are making that cut and you are in a time of the year where it tends to be more rain in the forecast, it's not a bad idea to do. Or maybe if you're doing it on the trunk itself, and so you really want to make sure that... Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
I know Flo discussed it a little bit in the, the general canker episode we did with him, but you did some research in your PhD on this, right? So Absolutely. Yeah, so can you talk a bit about um, your work with preventative care for um, preventing bot cankers? Absolutely. So we kind of did a real general survey of all the different canker diseases on almond and found that pruning wounds tend to be this really kind of main entry point of how they're getting into trees. Um, so we wanted to do somewhat of like a two-pronged or integrated approach where we're not only looking at what products we can use that can be put on pruning wounds to prevent infection, but also when is the best time to make these applications, when is the best time to make pruning cuts to really minimize your risk of infection. So looking at more of the protective side or preventative side of this, we tested I think about 26 different fungicidal products over the last three years. Pretty intensive studies, just trying to get a broad idea of what products would work from different frac groups, biologicals, paints, sealants, you name it, we probably tried it. <laughs> and after those three years of studies, we really found that one of the top performing products was Topsin. And this is consistent with a lot of other studies on AC as well as other fungal pathogens that cause cankers. So we found that Applications of Topsin on pruning wounds seem to be really effective at preventing infection from a multitude of canker fungi, not just Botrytis but also Eutypa and Cytospora, which are also pathogens that cause cankers on almond. In terms of the susceptibility work, we really just wanted to ask the question, when is the best time to make pruning cuts? And after that pruning cut is made, how long does that wound remain susceptible for? Our study suggested that when pruning cuts are made, September, October, November, December, and January, Regardless of month, fresh pruning wounds are always the most susceptible. Oftentimes, you're getting between 80 to 100% infection of those wounds. Compared to looking at two weeks after you've made the pruning wound and coming in and infecting those wounds, reduction is oftentimes 40 to 50%. And oftentimes by week three, you're down maybe 20 to 30%. So really ma major reductions um, in infections after two to three weeks after pruning wounds are made. So that susceptibility period is really a lot smaller. So this kind of wraps back into the protective work where we can look at, there's this really big opportunity between fresh pruning wounds and up to two weeks after the wound has been made that wounds are gonna be really susceptible. So this is a really key time to make your application of your fungicide product. So we really try and emphasize and recommend once you make pruning wounds, come back in and follow up with a fungicide that's effective at protecting these pruning wounds. Do you know how long the topsin would protect a pruning wound? Would it get it to the point where it's no longer susceptible? I think, it, again, that also would depend on environmental factors. If it's a time of year, again, encountering more rain, maybe that topsin uh, will have efficacy up until that point, and then there might be a a point where you do have to reapply that fungicide. So okay. I think that really just comes in with watching the weather. Okay. Additionally, with these studies, again, I mentioned the five different pruning months we investigated. January seemed to be the month of lowest risk in terms of making pruning wound cuts. We were still getting relatively high amounts of infection at all different wound ages in September and October, even November. And then by December and January, we do see this decrease in the amount of infection that we're getting at the different wound ages. So January seemed to be a good time to make these pruning cuts and have lower risk of infection. Is that because temperatures are cold? It's hard to know because the question I often get too is rain happens in January in California a lot too. So it doesn't always make sense. So temperature typically 
there's a greater association um, with warmer temperatures and wound healing of like woody tissues, and you wouldn't expect to see that then in January when temperatures are cooler. But previous research on almond looking at Phytophthora syringi wounds has actually shown uh, measuring uh, different wound healing processes, particularly lignification and suberization, which are compounds that kind of assist in wound healing, are actually starting to rise, the, their levels of production are starting to rise in January compared to in the fall and early winter. Okay. So, so that might help kind of provide an added level of defense for the tree. So it may be less related to the pathogen at that point and more related to things going on physiologically in the tree. Prune in January, protect with fungicide. Yes. Anything else that growers should know? Yeah, I think those are the those are the biggest things. I think we are really trying to target protection early. Oftentimes, I think infections uh, happen quite early, especially when we're training trees. We're removing down to, what, three or four scaffolds, whatever is recommended now. And oftentimes that leaves a lot of large pruning wounds on the trunk of the tree. And these are really susceptible to infection. And these are really important uh, areas of the tree that provide that structural integrity for your tree. So if those are getting infected early, that can lead for problems down the line. So if we can really Thanks for listening to Growing the Valley, AUC and our you can find out more about this episode at our website, growingthevalleypodcast.com. Thank you for having me. We'd like to thank the Almond, Pistachio, Walnut, and Prune Boards for their support. We'd also like to thank my sister, Muriel Gordon, for writing and recording the theme music. 